Salutations everybody out there in podcast land This is the Judo Chop Suey Podcast And I'm your host, Judo Dave Roman Thank you all very much for checking out the podcast And if you're new to this podcast, welcome I would strongly suggest that if you are new to this podcast, you would start with the more recent episodes and work your way backwards if you wish. I've been getting a lot of messages lately on stuff that I have said on this podcast like maybe two and a half years ago when I first started. And, you know, it's it's interesting to me how maybe some of my views and opinions have not necessarily changed, but maybe evolved a little bit. I know I just... I just uh, conversed with somebody this morning about an episode I did over two years ago, and he was talking about, you know, some things that he disagreed with what I said. But, you know, I had to remind them that when I first started this podcast, I really had an American audience in mind. I was kind of ignorant when I first started out, and and uh, it never occurred to me that people outside of this country would actually listen to this thing, and that turns out to be half of you, half of my downloads come from outside of the United States. So I have had to become over the past couple of years more cognizant of that, obviously. So when I cover topics these days, I try and do so from a broad perspective. So with that in mind, on this episode of the Judo Chop Suey podcast, I'm going to have a guest by the name of James Wall. He is the owner of Wall-to-Wall Martial Arts in Denham Springs, Louisiana. Now, I know some of you were just thinking, well, Dave, you just said this is going to be a broad perspective. Well, I think a lot of what James is going to talk about is going to apply to anyone running a judo club in the free world. And what I mean by the free world, I'm talking about People that run judo clubs as a business and maybe they don't have any government funding. I do realize that in many, many other countries, judo clubs take place in community centers. They are heavily funded. They are heavily supported. Uh, But that's certainly not the case in the United States. And I don't reckon that's the case in other countries like Canada or maybe the UK or, or, or Australia. So I think what my guest has to say will apply uh to anyone that is running a judo club as a business, I, I think the principles are sound, and I'm really excited to bring him in because James has one of the largest judo clubs in the United States. That is without question. He he surmises probably a top five club in terms of numbers, and, and heck, it might be a top five club in terms of program as well, so... This is one of those must-listen podcasts, especially if you're in the United States, but certainly if you are a club owner anywhere in the world and you're trying to grow your club and you're trying to become a professional judo instructor, this is the podcast, this is the episode that you need to listen to. Now, before I bring James on, I wanted to discuss an article that I just read the other day written by Gary Goltz. Now, for those of you who are a part of judo in the United States, that name should be very familiar to you because he is known for three things in judo. For starters, he's the former president of the the USJA. Um, he also had a a, a bit of <laughs> a bit of a, a beef with Jack Black in a hilarious uh, sketch that was on the Conan O'Brien show several years ago. And he also has an uncanny resemblance to Tony Soprano. Now I know I know I said three things, but but he's also been a fixture in judo in the United States for decades, and he's a great sensei. 
He's a uh, Hachidan, if I'm not mistaken. So the other day, he published he published an article called What American Judo Leaders Can Learn from the Success of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Now, it's my understanding that this is an article that's going to appear in the next issue of Black Belt Magazine for the uh, April and May edition of Black Belt Magazine. And I found it very interesting. I don't want to give it away because, well... What I should say is that I'm not going to read the entire, enti- entire article here because I think the article deserves way more time than I can give it on this episode. But what I really like about the article is that he states some of the problems that he sees in judo in the United States and he offers some corrective action. And granted, it's 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 just a, a brief highlight of what he feels the corrective action should be. But I got to tell you, Just about everything written in this article are things that I have spoken about and spoken against throughout the course of this podcast that I've been doing over the past two years or so. So, you know, just to give some highlights, you know, he discusses some of the issues like uh, judo's focus on juniors and um, trying to help adults with overcoming the fear of falling. And he also makes an interesting argument about judo and Brazilian jiu-jitsu recognizing each other's ranks. Now, I don't know how I feel exactly about that one. However, I know that on this podcast, I have talked about that if you're a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, that in my opinion, you should be fast-tracked in judo to earn higher judo ranks, Q ranks, at a at a much quicker pace than the average adult. And I know that's kind of a point that many will disagree with but since most of the ways one can win a judo contest happens on the ground and Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belts are phenomenal on the ground I I think it makes sense that after a short evaluation period if they are deserving that maybe you you bump them up to Sankyu right away okay I you know obviously it's a case-by-case basis but I do I do feel that way I I just Many jiu-jitsu black belts are going to have a lot of stand-up experience. And while for many of them, their their stand-up ability may be rudimentary, but a lot of them are not. They're, they're very good on their feet. And again, please, I'm just talking in generalities here. You got to do this kind of thing on a case-by-case basis. But I thought that was an interesting point. And, and I'm, I'm curious to hear what you guys would think about it after you read this article. I'm going to link the article in the show notes and... If you're a subscriber of Black Belt Magazine, I'm, I'm almost certain this article is going to appear in the next edition. So read it and let me know what you think. If you want to reach out to me, you can do so at judochopsuishow at gmail.com. If you want to follow me, you can do so um, on Instagram at judoka. My Instagram is awesome. You can also follow me on Twitter, which is also at judoka. Uh, my Twitter is not as awesome. And you could also follow me on Facebook if you search for a Judo Chop Suey Show. Uh, you'll be able to find the Facebook page. And that Facebook page is not nearly as awesome as my Instagram or my Twitter. And if you're brave enough, if you want to hunt me down on Facebook and add me as a Facebook friend on my regular Facebook profile, you go right ahead. Just let me know that you are a listener or something like that because sometimes I get these these friend requests from people that we don't have mutual friends, but you're a listener, but I don't know if you're a listener. So I just kind of let the, the friend request sit there and, and, uh, well, I just let it sit there un, unresponded. All right. It's time to, for me to bring on my guest. He is the head sensei 
at wall-to-wall martial arts in Denham Springs, Louisiana. Mr. James Wall. James, welcome to the Judo Chop Suey Podcast. How are you doing today? Doing good, Dave. Doing good. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing fantastic. It's it's finally a, a great. I've been wanting to get you on the podcast for quite some time because we we met uh, in person at JudoCon, and I remember when you gave your presentation on on you know running a a, a, a judo club as as a business as a, and as a profession. I remember you said at, at JudoCon that you felt that that was the most important uh, seminar of the entire conference. And I, I happen to agree with that statement. So I was, I'm really excited to bring you on uh, to, to discuss really a lot of the points that you talked about at that conference. But I think for a, a wider judo audience, it, it would, it's it, some of the things that you talked about is very important to get out there. So again, I appreciate you taking the time to come on. No problem. I appreciate you taking the time to uh, to talk with me. I know you're a busy guy, just like we all are. You got a lot going on. And, you know, I know I, I speak for a lot of people when I say that we appreciate, you know, the effort you make to to get judo out there, to, to spread the word a little bit, so to speak, and to support judo. I know you work a full time job and have a family. I know how that is. It's hard to yeah. always get time for passion projects, but uh, it is appreciated. I, I appreciate that. So so, James, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I mean, I know that you're the head coach at Wall to Wall Martial Martial Arts in Denham Springs, Louisiana. I got that right. Correct. All right. So, tell us a little bit about your what your club, what you do, your 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 rank, your experience, all, all that kind of thing. Yeah. So, and I'll try to keep it pretty brief. You know, I, there's really not a whole lot to tell about me. I, I'm not anything exceptional or outstanding. I was never an elite level athlete or anything like that. Just a normal guy. Uh, I started judo, I actually started Aikido before judo, probably back around oh. 1996 or so, uh, 96, 97, somewhere in that area. So 22, 23 years ago, I'm 45 now, okay. uh, at a little school in Baton Rouge uh, called the Gentle Wind Dojo. And they were actually much more of an Aikido dojo than anything else. But they did have a judo program. Um, and uh, the gentleman who was like the number two guy there, Gary. Uh, who was a sixth don in Aikido, Tamiki Aikido, but he was also a black belt in judo. And so I uh, started Aikido, did it for a couple of months, and then uh, tried out a judo class and was kind of hooked almost instantly. It just really just really felt good. I enjoyed it. I loved it. Uh, I, I really enjoyed Aikido, and I continued studying for years. I eventually made it to Sandan in Aikido. And, oh, uh, oh. and man, I, I love Aikido. It's a great martial art, and I actually taught it for many years. Uh, at our school, uh, but judo really just kind of became my passion, just kind of really fell in love with that art. Uh, and so that kind of became my, my main focus. But, um, you know, I, was, I trained there. It was a small school. They were not a commercial operation. They were in a commercial location, but they didn't run it as a business so much. It was, you know, 40 bucks a month. Uh, come and go as you please. Stop anytime. No real marketing or advertising other than like an ad in the yellow pages. But it was a really good group of people. They were great instructors. Um, very passionate and very patient in what they did. I learned a lot there. Uh, Gary was not a competitive judoka, uh, but he was a good, uh, very good technical instructor. He had really good technique and was very patient. Um, but we weren't a competitive school by any means. You know, it was uh, it was much more just good traditional solid judo. So, uh, you know, I stayed there, made it to Sonkyu, and about that time, my daughter was maybe around five and a half or six years old. And when I got SONQ, um, at the time, the USJA had a coach certification or education course you could do that was all 
not online, but it was basically kind of correspondence, you know, read the book, take the sure. test, make lesson plans and things like that, send them in to be evaluated. So I went through that process, uh, got my you know, level back then. They called it level one coach or something like that. And once I got that, I, I asked, you know, my sensei for permission to start a kids judo program because we didn't have one there. And I really wanted my daughter to be able to, to start training judo and thought it was something cool we could do together. Um, at that time, I had no plans or desires to ever be a full time judo instructor. It hadn't even crossed my mind. I just enjoyed doing judo and wanted to share it with my daughter. So uh, I started a kids program there uh, and, and we stayed there for many years. My wife eventually started training as well. Um, and we were there for a long time. I think I made it to Sandon, if I'm not mistaken, right before we decided to, to move and open our own place. Of course, I had to go outside of, of my school to get promotions. Um, sure. Uh, so when I got my black belt in judo, uh, my sensei asked me to also take over the adult program. He had gone back to school to pursue his master's degree and wanted me to take over the adult program. So I was running the adult program and the kids program and uh, was having a good time doing it. And um, really, we grew that program. It, it, it became much larger than the Aikido side of things there at that school. Um, just I think because of the energy and just the enthusiasm that, that we put into it. Mm. Of course, of course. And I, I, I remember when you gave the, the, the clinic on uh, uh, running a kid's class, which I do want to get on, onto that later on the podcast. Sure, I, sure. Thought, I thought some, the energy that you and your wife had, had, and your daughter had, had, had shown there was, was really fascinating. You, you guys were doing things that I had never really seen before at a judo club. So let, but let's back up a little bit. Um, so you are now a full-time judo instructor. That is, that is your profession. If you were to put it on a resume, yes. that is, that is what you do. You're not some accountant and you just kind of teach judo on the side. Correct? No, is that no, correct? Uh, that's correct. We opened our own school back in 2005. It was just in a, a metal building in our backyard, about 1200 square feet, barely any, uh, any air conditioning, which makes it rough here in Louisiana. Um, and so we, we taught in our backyard for about seven and a half years and we slowly grew that program and also added on to that building a few times, um, which made it interesting because when you've got, you know, 40 or so, 40, 50 people coming to do judo two or three times a week and they're all driving into your basically into your yard. <laughs> so, right. So I remember people getting stuck, you know, in my yard and things like that after class and having to you know, pull them out and things. So we're here in Louisiana. It's kind of a rural area. It rains a lot. So, uh, so yeah, but, but about uh, seven years ago, back in 2012, um, made the move to being a full-time judo instructor, a full-time martial arts instructor, really. And so, yeah, if I had to fill out a resume or a credit application or anything like that, that's, that's what I am. I'm a, I'm a full-time martial arts instructor. When people ask me what I do for a living, I, I'm a martial arts instructor. That's what I do full-time. And um, yeah. So you had a building on your property that, and that's how you started your judo club. You had... You you had a, a building and you had I presumably you had mats and mm -hmm. and you taught that way for quite a while. It's, so you said two thousand five. So you taught in that that way for quite a while. And so is, do I got that correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. From two thousand five to two thousand twelve. So seven seven and a half years we were in our in our backyard, pretty much in a garage. Basically, it was a really large garage. But yes. Gotcha. Gotcha. So how was it, what was your strategy like once you decided to go on this endeavor, um, to, to teach judo, when did you start, um, the, the business aspect of it? Because it's one thing to, you know, maybe have a space in your backyard 
or, or maybe some mat area somewhere. But in order to grow a club, you have to do more than just kind of be there. So I, I want you to kind of take me through maybe some of the things that you had to do, some of the lessons that you had to learn to advertise and to, and to grow your student base. And, and before we get to that, how many students do you have now um, that, are, that are registered in your club? So the last count I got from my wife, and of course this goes up and down, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a constantly in flux. Uh, we strive to keep that, that flux as minimal as possible, of course, but it, it's, it is up and down. Uh, last time I got a count, she, because my wife actually is an accountant, she has what her degree is uh, in, in, and that's what she's done for many years. So she, she's the numbers person. She's the brains behind the operation. She keeps track of all the, the records and the paperwork and the promotions, as well as being a really good instructor. I'm not trying to take away from her skills of on course. that, but uh, definitely she's, she's uh, way, way better than me at, at the, the record keeping and keeping everything organized. So last count I got from her, we were at 203, 203 now that counts all of our students that's not just judo students but that we are primarily a judo school so um we have you know junior judo teen adult judo we also do have a, a bjj or jiu-jitsu class uh we have a boxing class we have a ladies fitness class and we have an eido a japanese sword class okay. uh, but, but by far uh the two judo programs are the largest that we that we have junior judo makes up about 44 45 percent of that 203 and then teen adult judo about another 25 to 30 percent so wow. 65 to 70 percent of our numbers do come from from judo and that's not counting anybody twice because we do have people that train in judo and jujitsu or judo and boxing things like that but uh that's not double counting or double dipping that's just you know, just straight numbers of individual students across the board. Uh, so that, just a hair over 200. That's a, that, that's an incredible number. I, I only know of one other school personally that, that it has, has those kind of numbers and. Um, yeah. Surge. I, I mean, and, uh, Surge exactly. Yeah, Mayo yeah. Quanchi. Yeah. That's the, yeah. that's the only other club I've ever heard of with those kind of numbers. So. There, there really could be others out there. I know there are a few other relatively successful programs. Um, I don't personally know of another one that's larger than us, other than maybe Surge up in Rhode Island. It's possible there's somebody out there. I would say we're, we're, we've got to definitely be in the top five uh, in the U.S. for sure. And, I and some, think so, yeah. Yeah, and, and a lot of the ones I know of that are maybe anywhere close to us they're not they're not commercial operations and that's not taking anything away from them i think anybody doing any kind of judo is a good thing um but it is different it's different if you're teaching for free at a community center or for forty dollars a month at a ymca or a church gym or something like that it's a little different uh not that i could go do what those people do it's a different operation completely but uh i don't know of anybody other than surge that's that's running the numbers we're running and that's you know, doing it as a commercial operation, charging, you know, uh, I guess kind of a market going type rate and things like that. Right, 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 right. So, so you've got these, these outstanding numbers, but this stuff probably doesn't just happen organically, you know, in the sense that you just kind of, you know, put up a post here and there and, and, yeah. and people come, can you take us through what is it you do to draw? Who are your, tar who's your target students? Who do you advertise to and what kind of advertising strategies do you do to get people through that door? 
Yeah, you're right. It, it definitely doesn't just happen. And uh, I think and, and there's so many things here that we could talk about. And I know we have limited time. I know you heard a lot of this at JudoCon a few months back. But um, I think one mistake that a lot of martial arts instructors uh, make, uh, particularly judo people for sure, but a lot of others as well, is they are under this, I guess, kind of a misguided belief or, or, or perception that if they just become really, really skilled in their martial art of choice, in this case, judo, um, if they're really good competitors and, and they get a high level black belt, they can just go and, and rent a space and just put a sign up and uh, people are just going to line up, you know, to come in and do judo. And it just doesn't happen like that. I mean, it, it really, really doesn't. And it took us a long time to figure that out. Uh, even when we opened in our backyard at that time, I still had no plans of doing this full time. You know, right. uh, I, I was working a full time job and, and and running the school at night. And basically it was it was a hobby that paid for itself and it paid for us to travel to tournaments and seminars and camps and clinics. So it basically supported our judo habit, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. Um, and then over the years, it, it, it just I started to like it and I started to love it. And then I, I really discovered that it it was what I wanted to do. It was the only time I was really happy as far as a work environment was when I was on that mat teaching judo. And so then I started trying to figure out, OK, how can I do this? How can I become a full time judo instructor? And so at the time I started looking around and I'm like, surely there are people around the country you know, that have figured this out. And so I started going, you know, to to camps and, and seminars and clinics in other states um, and trying to seek out judo people that could maybe give me the information I needed that could share this knowledge with me. And I I met a lot of great people, a lot of high ranking judoka. I went to a lot of good camps and seminars, learned a lot of cool judo. Uh, but it was really odd at the time we were averaging, you know, 40, 45, 50 people pretty consistently. Sure. Um, and it, it, it's funny because I would go to these, these sometimes two day camps or whatever. And I'm these, at the time I was like a Sandon and, uh, I was surrounded by these, you know, fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth Dons in some cases. And I'm going there with the hopes of getting this, this knowledge, this, uh, man, these guys are going to have the answers. And it, it was kind of, um, it was a sobering experience because when they found out the numbers we had, which weren't that big really at the time they were asking me for advice, you know, how, <laughs> how are you doing this? And, and I'm not trying to be insulting to those people. I'm really not taking away from them. They knew a lot more judo than I knew. Um, some of them have been on the mat, you know, as long as I've been alive. And, and so I learned a lot of great things judo wise and technique wise, but it was sobering because I discovered I couldn't find anybody that had the, the information on, on how to run a successful program. All I ever heard was, yeah, you'll never make money teaching judo. You'll, you right. can't make a living teaching judo. And we've all kind of been programmed with that in our minds from day one. And so it was a little, it was sobering, you know, and it really made me kind of stop and, and, and reconsider if it was possible or not. Um, and it, it took me kind of really looking at things from a different perspective um, and, and realizing that I had to look outside of the judo world and judo community to find the answers that I was looking for and, and that the way most judo schools were ran and it's still that way today, it, they really haven't embraced modern business practices. They really, they're maybe teaching great judo technique on the mat, but they're not doing anything from a business or marketing 
our management perspective to grow and sustain that growth. And so um, it, it kind of worked out good just as, as overall coincidental timing that I had taken a job. Uh, I left an IT job at uh, LSU here in Baton Rouge. Uh, I left that to go into technology sales, actually selling educational technology equipment. And I stayed in that field for about six or seven years, worked for two different pretty large companies. And what that really helped me do was get a lot more of an understanding of the sales process and what it means to to talk to people and to try to, to qualify them as customers and find out what their needs were and how important it was to do follow up calls and to really work your your leads, so to speak, not just sit there and expect people to come in and, and buy from you or sign up with you, but to actually, you know, actively try to get them to be your your customer, your student in this case. Sure. And also, you know, I went through a lot of sales training courses and classes as I was working with these companies. They would bring, you know, people in to do weekend long trainings with us and role playing exercises and all those types of things. And uh, I'm by no means am I a world class salesperson, but I was good at that job and it really helped me a lot. I think a lot of the things I learned in that career field, I was able to carry over in, you know, into what we do now. Uh, the downside was I was miserable. I absolutely hated what I was doing. You know, I was away yeah. from my family all the time. I was traveling. I was on the road, sleeping in hotels. You know, it was just it was miserable from that perspective. And it was an extremely high pressure job, too, because you're always, always, always being pressured to hit higher numbers, hit higher numbers. So it was stressful. Uh, it took me away from my school, away from my family. And thankfully, I had my wife and daughter and a, a really good group of black belts that were there. And when I couldn't be there teaching classes, they they were and they stepped up and really uh, if it weren't for those people, you know, wall to wall wouldn't exist. They kept it going sure. during those times when I couldn't be there. And I made sure that I was always on the mat at least one night a week. But there were weeks when I was only on the mat one night a week. That was it. You know, and I was on the road the rest of the time. Hmm. So, so that you, was a big turning point for me. You know, right. um, you know, the only other thing I would say that was a huge, the, the really big monumental turn for us was uh, I had a gentleman start taking private judo lessons from me and a really nice guy. And he was actually a, a full time karate instructor in a town about 45 minutes away, taught teaching traditional Ishinru karate. And he actually started talking to me one night after a private lesson, asking me, had I ever thought about doing it full time? And you know, he had saw me teach classes and he really thought I had what it takes. And of course, I gave him the same thing. You know, I don't want to do it, but everybody says you really can't make a living doing this. And, uh, you know, he really stepped up and became kind of a mentor to me. And my wife and I, we went out and observed him in action, observed him teaching his classes. And we sat down with him and he, you know, asked him tons of questions. And he was very, very um very willing to help because we were far enough apart that we were not competitors. And he was just a genuinely nice guy. As a Sensei Frank DiBenedetto at uh, DiBenedetto's Karate out in Hammond, Louisiana. And he had been a full-time martial arts instructor for about a decade at that point. Actually now has two real successful schools. And that was a, and really for my wife and I, just a, I mean, that was the turning point. I think that was the, the point when we realized, okay, we can do this. And we can do this without compromising the integrity of the martial art we're teaching because we watched him teach and he was teaching real martial arts. His students 
were working hard. They were doing good technique. They were doing self-defense. They were sparring at the end of class. You know, he's a real, true, traditional karate instructor. It's it's not, you know, uh, a McDojo, so to speak. Like I know a, a lot of karate places these days have that reputation, whether it's deserved or not. But that wasn't the case with Sensei Frank. He was running a really good program. And even though it was a different martial art than ours, we could recognize that he was teaching good martial arts, if that makes any so sense. So, so this is this is a person because I think you, you did mention this at the conference that this was your your business mentor of sorts. Yes, and, and you and you and Patty had kind of taken a lot of the information that you had gotten from him, and that's where you made that leap to start your own club. Now, you just said something interesting here, and I wanted to kind of expound on that a little bit. How do you maintain the integrity of judo while trying to grow? Um, grow your business and maintain the amount of students that you do because that's that's got to be a very difficult thing because I think because I do I'm very familiar with the the McDojo moniker and I think a lot of times for for martial arts businesses they almost have to become McDojos because that's what that's what ultimately for them brings in the money. But sure. you've managed to maintain a judo school, and I have all these other programs, Brazilian jiu-jitsu and such. But your your main focus is judo, and you've managed yeah. to have a judo school and not lose that integrity. How do you do that? You know, it it's important, I think, and and this is one of the things I, I kind of mentioned at JudoCon, and I just taught a, a coach education seminar about a week or so ago, and it's one of the first things that that I covered and that I always cover when I teach those types of seminars. I think it's important that you sit down before you embark on any type of goal and evaluate yourself and the goal and that you have to be very honest with yourself and you have to really, really know what it is you're wanting to accomplish, why you're wanting to accomplish it and what you're willing to do you know, to accomplish that goal. And so for, for my wife and I, when we decided, OK, we're going to we're going to do this, we're going to rent a commercial space, we're going to make the move. This was a big area of concern for us. And I remember us sitting down and having some long conversations about this. How do we do this without crossing that line? You know, how do we not go over to the dark side, so to speak? Right. And, and so we were just really honest and upfront. And we kind of made a kind of a promise to each other that, look, you know, you're going to you're going to be my conscience and I'm going to be your conscience. And if either of us ever feels there's something that that we're doing with the school or decisions we're making that we don't feel completely comfortable with, then we're going to call each other out on that. You know, we're going to say, hey, look, I don't think that that's the right thing for us to do, you know, for our school, for our program, things like that. Um, and, and there were some, you know, some just some basic ground rules that we established, you know, things that we were not going to do. And, and again, when I say these things, it, it, I'm not trying to offend anybody out there that may be running a martial arts school that maybe they do some of these things. And I think everybody has to make their own decisions you know, for themselves. And, and I respect that. This is not me passing judgment. But for us personally, one of the things was, OK we're not ever going to promote kids to black belt rank in June. Sure. You know, I mean, 16 has always kind of been the established kind of minimum age that's kind of accepted across the board. And so we said, okay, you know, we're, 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 we're going to stick with that. And we've ever only promoted one person uh, to black belt at 16. And it was my daughter. And at the time she'd been training for over 11 years. So 
she had earned it. You know, it wasn't that I actually, I mean, I, I feel bad for my wife and daughter because whenever they have to test for promotion, man, they get put through the ringer even harder than anybody else because I don't ever want anyone to point at them and say they were given their rank because right. of their relationship. So we weren't going to do black belts on kids. Um, and we, we really, we, one of the things we learned from Sensei Frank, a couple of the things, number one was we had to charge more money. You know, we had to charge a rate that was, you know, sort of up there with kind of the current market, you know, what what most successful martial arts schools were charging. And I think the key thing in that sentence is what most successful martial arts schools are charging. Right, um, right, you right, cannot right. go by what the other judo program is, is doing that's only got eight or 10 students. You know, it. you need to look at who's being successful. And that's that's what you want to model yourself after in, in the ways that you can do that. Was so it we, hard for you to make that, to make that decision? It because was, it, it was, was. Okay. It, 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 we struggled. We struggled with that. Um, two of the things that, that Frank told me really two of the main things like, listen, you have to charge more money and you have to start using membership agreements. You can't do ah, this okay. pay cash month to month, pay as you go type of thing. Up till that point, you know, uh, and even a little while after that, because we we got on board with charging more money, you know, and then uh, one of the other things he said was, you know, you have to have it so that it's an automatic payment system. You can't be letting people just remember to come in and pay you. And that was really true because, man, when we stopped and looked at it, you know, every single month we had people that were they would forget to pay us, whether it was on purpose or it was accidental. You know, we were chasing people from the first of the month till the 30th of the month to, to, to get them to pay their dues. And, uh, you know, what he said made a lot of sense to me. He's like, listen, you, you want to teach judo. You know, you want to teach martial arts. You don't want to be a bill collector. That's not what you're trying to do. And honestly, when you do those things, when you're having to call people or bug them to pay their dues, it really starts to put kind of a negative connotation on that relationship. You know, they start associating you in their mind with the guy that's bugging them for money. Nobody oh, likes, okay. you know, nobody likes bill collectors, right? Nobody wants to get a bill in the mail or get a phone call because their payments late or something like that. So, and that made a lot of sense to me when you think about it like that. So, you know, we raised our rates and, and we started uh, using a company, a third party company to process our payments automatically each month. We still didn't embrace the membership agreements. We really, that was the hardest one for us. Gotcha. And e even after we opened up commercially, I remember for the first year or two we were open, we had a big sign on our window, no contracts. You know, that right. was kind of one of the things we, we, we advertised. And I see a lot of judo schools do that. And it's a huge mistake. But at the time, it made sense to us. We thought it was it was going to differentiate us in the market. You know, at the time, there were three other martial arts schools, two really close to us and a third not far away. And uh, they were all uh, Taekwondo type schools and they all used membership agreements. And so we're like, oh, well, we're going to separate ourselves in the market. We're going to use this as, as a selling point that we don't make you sign a contract. Um, and so for the first couple of years, we didn't. Um, and it took us a while to finally, you know, come around and embrace that as a real necessity if you want to grow a really successful program. Uh, but so each step along the way was was sort of a change for us. And but but man, when we started embracing those things, it it really, really, we started to see our program grow exponentially. Um, and so I think that to me, that's that's three of the things that a lot of judo schools don't do. And they seem very unwilling to do. 
Um, and I really think it's hindering their success. You know, you have to charge a rate that's equitable with what's, you know, passable in your market. You know, and we, I talked about this at JudoCon, the, the concept of perceived value that particularly as Americans, we're kind of conditioned to believe that if something is more expensive, it must be better. It must be higher quality. And so a lot of people, I think, are under the mistaken impression that if the BJJ school, for example, up the road, if they're charging $100 a month, well, then we should charge $50 a month and we'll get twice as many people because we're charging half as much. It seldom works that way. And people that look at that, they a lot of people are going to say, well, this place is charging twice as much. They must be twice as good. You know, they must be a lot better if they can afford to charge twice as much. Um, so that perceived value definitely comes into play. You know, another thing that Frank said to me that made a lot of sense when he said it, it was that, you know, look, you can have 10 students and, you know, they're each paying you 50 bucks a month. And so, you know, you're making $500 or you can have five students and they're paying you $100 a month and you're making $500. Right. Which would you rather have? And it, it, you have to think about that for a second because, well, you're going to say, well, I want more students. But if you only had five students and you're making the same money, you're going to be able to give those five students a lot more of your time and personal attention. So you're making more, the same amount of money, but you're actually able to provide an even better you know, experience to them you know, as far as a teaching experience, a learning experience. And so it's these things are really difficult for for judo people to, to wrap their minds around. I know because it was hard for us. It was right. really difficult for us to do this. But the thing, the, the things he was saying, once we really stopped and thought about it, they made a lot of sense. And again, as we implemented those things, we, we saw, you know, we saw our school start to grow and it wasn't overnight, you know, but it, but it definitely started to grow. And so, uh, you know, to kind of circle back around in my long winded way, I think that you just have to really be clear. You have to have a clear vision and you have to set up front what you feel are the most important things for you and your program, for you to, to lay your head down at night and feel good about what you've done. And there are people around the country that were probably some at JudoCon who I'm sure look at us and our program and they don't know us and they've never been to our school. They've never met our students. They've never worked out with me or watched me teach or anything like that, but they hear the things I say and they see our numbers. And I know beyond a doubt, there are people out there that automatically in their mind assume that we're, we're selling rank, you know, we're, we're a McDojo that we're just there taking people's money and you just show up. And as long as your, your payment goes through every month, you're guaranteed to get your rank. And they believe that we're probably not turning out good judo black belts and right. nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, you know, it, it, but again, those people say those things because they don't know us or they've never been to our school or, or something like that. Um, but we're very honest with ourselves. We, we, we know what it is we're trying to accomplish. We know what we are and we know what we aren't. And we're not trying to produce elite level athletes. We're not trying to get people on the national team or, or on the Olympic team or the world team or anything like that. Uh, that's not our goal. Uh, so we're very, very good at, at what we do and, and at the goals that we try to achieve. 
and we produce some really outstanding judo black belts. Um, now, I think you mentioned at JudoCon that you do not – I'm sure your students compete, but you're not running a quote-unquote competition club. Is that correct? I think you said that at JudoCon. Is that, yeah, is yeah. that right? Now, yeah, now yeah. why why is that? What, what Do you think that there's drawbacks to trying for your – maybe for, just for yourself if there's any drawbacks to, to trying to go down that road? Yeah. So again, I'm going to give you my opinion here and, and sure. I'm not, I'm not passing judgment on what anybody does. I'll reiterate what I said earlier. I think anybody doing judo in any fashion and teaching judo in any way, I think is doing good. Um, and, and there's a place I think for, for a lot of different types of judo and different focuses, but in my personal opinion, the, I feel that what's happened with the judo in the U.S. and honestly around the world, but certainly in the U.S., is that it's taken almost a completely sport-oriented focus. And I think that that has really, really been detrimental to judo here in the U.S. And it's obvious when you look at the numbers. And we talked about that at JudoCon. I've heard you right. talk about it on your podcast. Our numbers here in America for active judo people are just abysmal. I mean, they're just – it's pathetic. It's really, really bad. Um, and that I believe is, is an, is a direct result of two things. And number one, what I said earlier, people not being willing to, to modernize their thinking and their approach to running a school. And number two, this focus almost entirely on sport judo. Um, and it, it's just, it's so obvious to me and I don't understand why other people don't see it, that it's not working. You know, this approach that's been adopted over the last several decades, last 30, 40 years, it's not working here in America. Maybe it's working in other countries and, and it is. Um, and I can't speak to that because I, I, I'm not in those countries and I didn't right. grow up in those systems. But I'm here and I've been in judo for over two decades and I've I've traveled all over the country and I've met a lot of judo instructors. and I've visited a lot of judo schools and it's not working. Um, it's just not working. So I think it's that that focus almost entirely on sport judo. And I think that a lot of judo instructors, again, are not really, truly honest with themselves. They're not doing a really true, honest self-evaluation, because when you talk to them, they automatically like the first things they'll say when I ask them, well, what do you want to do with your program? What are you trying to accomplish? Oh, well, it's about making better people. And it's about character development. And I think they say those things because that's what they've been programmed to say. But when you dig a little deeper and you start finding out how they run their classes and how many competitions they go to and how they base their promotions, everything about it is all built around the sport, sport. approach. It's oh, all built right. around this model um, and, and, and it's not working. So we... We definitely compete. Um, I competed a lot when I was coming up through the ranks. Um, my wife competed a lot. My daughter competed a lot, a lot, a lot when she was younger in her younger years and in her teen years. Um, so I believe that competition can be a good, healthy thing when it's used for the right reasons. And I think competition does have a place in judo, but I think we put way too much emphasis on it. Uh, and I think it's been very detrimental. So early on, I ran a much more sport oriented program. And what I found and when I stop and look back at it now through the lens of experience and, and knowledge, um, 
I was basically rebuilding my program, you know, every six months to a year, you know, huh. I would get, I'd get a bunch of people in and I'd keep them for about a year, maybe a year and a half. And then I was building a whole new program up. But back then as a young black belt, a young coach, I was basing my goals and my feelings of success on, on success at competitions. You know, how many people can I take to the tournament and how many medals can we win? And right. we were taking a lot of people. We were taking sometimes 20, 30 people to local and regional tournaments and we were doing well. We were not dominating, but we were doing really, really well. We won more than our share of matches. And so I thought I was doing a great job. I thought, man, I'm, a, I'm an awesome coach. I'm an awesome judo black belt. I'm doing a great job with this thing. But then a year later, 95 percent of those people are gone. And huh. I've got I've got white belts and yellow belts. I'm having to start over again. And I think that's sort of the pattern that so many judo schools fall into. And, yeah, you're going to have a few people that are going to stick around. You're going to have a few adults that are going to stick with it and make black belt. You're going to have a few kids that will stick with it and maybe they make it to the teen adult program, but not very many. And again, over and over, when I talk to school owners or, or, or people that run judo programs around the country, this is the same theme. This is the same story when you start asking them questions. And so I think it's this focus on too much of sport judo approach. So the way that we run our program now, we teach judo. Every class, every class, we're going to do Rondori, whether it's a kid's class or it's an adult class. Every class is going to end in Rondori. Um, and we have different levels of Rondori based on what we're trying to accomplish. Um, but I can tell you that it's very seldom that we go 100 percent, you know, Shi'i level Rondori. That's right. very seldom. Uh, and I think that's another mistake a lot of programs make is they put people out there. A, they start throwing them too soon. B, they throw them in the, into the deep into the pool with with hardcore Rondori way, way, way too soon. And and that runs a lot of people off. You have a high rate of injuries. And also it's just it's very demotivating for people. And so we try to use competition as a tool. We try to use it for accomplishing some positive things. So. There are people out there, particularly a lot of kids who can benefit from doing some competition work as long as it's done with the right mindset, right and, mindset and, right and it's the right amount of it. But there's a lot of people out there that that can also be a very negative experience. You know, if you have a kid that comes in that's suffering with with, with confidence issues, that's getting bullied at school. You know, these types of things, it's not an athlete. Maybe they're a little overweight or they're just not an athletic coordinated kid. And you throw them out there to get the, the crap kicked out of them in Rondori. Well, all you're really doing now is is basically putting that kid with with better trained bullies, you know, bullies that, right. are, that actually have better skills at, at beating them up. And so, yeah, maybe one out of 100 of the kids you do that to they're going to be able to deal with that in a positive way. They're going to find that inner strength. They're going to step up, blah, blah, blah. But most kids are not. And honestly, as a kid, they they aren't mature enough yet to know how to deal with that. But we just assume because that's how it's always been done in judo. Right. You just throw them out there and it's going to toughen them up. It's that old school mentality like you've mentioned in a previous podcast that a lot of the people that brought judo here to america were were military folks they were they were veterans and so of the judo i think that was taught to them their instructors and then their instructors and so forth 
it's it's this hardcore old school approach of let's let's just get them out there let's work them really hard let's let's beat them it's almost kind of like forging a sword you know let's just let's make it let's heat it up and let's let's beat it into shape and that just doesn't work for most people uh particularly right. in the world we live in today so so we use competition we try to use it in a positive way we encourage our people to compete we don't make anyone compete um with the kids we encourage them to do some competitions when we feel it's appropriate you know we will always tell the parents before a tournament coming up if we're going to participate listen you know if your kid hasn't competed before and you're not sure if they're ready please speak to one of us after class and we'll talk about it and together we'll come up with a decision and it's it's not a rank thing you can't say yeah because he's a yellow belt he's ready to compete. yeah because kids are so different man it's it you can't go by that and so we we take a real careful approach to that with our kids uh with our adults it's it's the same thing you know what i tell my adults is that in the adult program if you're physically able if you're not injured or don't have a condition a physical condition or or age you know just physical reasons if there's not a physical reason that you shouldn't compete then we would like to see you compete at least once per rank you know at right. least one time now not at white belt but after yellow belt you know we'd like to see you compete at least once per rank um but we don't make them do that you know and then we do make them track and collect promotion points you have to earn points to get your next promotion and one of the quickest ways you can get your points is by competing but it's not the only way we make other avenues available referee training tech official training kata you know right. assistant coaching you know helping out in kids classes different things like that so we make other things available for them to be able to earn their promotion points but certainly one of the quickest ways to get it is through competition and so competition for us is just a, a small part of what we do and we really try hard to use it as a tool to accomplish a larger goal which is helping people become stronger and healthier and better able to defend themselves um so yeah we compete i would say in a typical year we we're going to host two in-house tournaments we call them training and development tournaments we do them right there at our school those are great for kids and novices yeah and, right and then we usually host at least one full-size tournament the la open we've been hosting it now for 15 years uh, it's a two mat tournament and we hosted freestyle nationals for several years there. So there were a couple of years we were hosting two, two full size and two in house. And then we'll usually go and participate in two or three other tournaments kind of in our region. So I would say anywhere from five to eight tournaments a year, depending on the year, you know, depending on if we're hosting one tournament or two and things like that. So it's not like we don't compete. We do compete but it's just not our focus it, it's in the grand scheme of things it's not that important you know um i think if you look back if you read a lot of the stuff that kano wrote about judo um he put a lot more emphasis on ron dory than he did shiai mm -hmm. and you know ron dory is one of the things that really set judo apart when he when he when he put it together and i think ron dory is a very powerful tool that you can use i think that really I think you can accomplish 95% of your goals for your students as far as confidence and fitness and self-defense. I think you can accomplish about 90% of that with just Ron Dory 
in your school, you know? And I, you know, and I tend to agree with that. I, because I, and I think a lot of people feel the opposite way about mm -hmm. uh, Shi'i. And I, I, I don't know. I, I, you know, especially when you're talking about kids and maybe confidence issues and stuff to, to, I, I think having a focus on Rondori, you know, within your club in, in that kind of environment is, is better for kids that, that may have, you know, some self-confidence issues or whatever, rather Absolutely. than, you know, rather than throwing them out there in a tournament where, everybody is looking at you fail mm -hmm. uh, yes. and that that's yes. a that's a big i oh, mean yeah. boy oh, I yeah. Mean, oh yeah absolutely certainly at certain times of my own life if i was put in that kind of situation um you know actually i have been in those types of situations not not for judo but but in in other types of activities to 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 yeah. be the center of focus of failure is, oh yeah it, it's yeah. a it, you, it's you, can, you can certainly grow from that but that that's not the ideal way to grow. No, um, no, no. Like know, some people can do development. That. Yeah, some people can do it, but a lot of people can't. And you know, we talked about this at JudoCon. You know, when we have a, a new a parent bring a new student in, or whether or if it's an adult student, you know, we have a, a very lengthy uh, you know health questionnaire release packet they have to fill out. It's like ten or eleven pages, but. Uh, you know, one of the last pages in that, it, it, there's some questions on there. And one of those questions is, you know, what are your reasons for looking into martial arts training? And if it's an adult, we're asking that adult, why are you wanting to do this? Obviously, right. with kids, it's the parent filling it out. So what we're really asking is, OK, mom, why are you bringing your son to martial arts? What are you looking for? Now, a lot of times I've already qualified this if I have spoken to them on the phone or we've exchanged emails or whatever. As part of what I've done, I've, I've already kind of qualified it, but we do occasionally have walk ins um, and we also just want to get it in writing because that way it's something we can refer back to. And we always look at that. You know, yeah. my wife is my wife's really, really good. You know, she'll check those packets and, and she'll make note of how that person found out about us, like from Google or Facebook or whatever. And then also, what is that kid looking for or that parent looking for for their kid? Because sometimes it, it's really, really important. You can gain a lot of information from that that really will help you understand how you want to approach introducing this kid to martial arts now you know? i i wanted to follow up what you just said here something you said at judocon you, you kind of mentioned it here why is mom important why is advertising to mom important you mentioned that at judocon and i wanted to get your your thoughts on that and, and explain that a little bit for the audience yeah absolutely you know um Again, this one thing you'll, you'll see with us is that, or I hope you'll see, and I tried to explain this at the seminar last week, is that every everything that we do is for a reason, and it, it, it's all sort of tied together. It, it's a system, and a lot of people come to me in person or contact me on social media or through email or whatever, and they always want to know, well, what's your secret? What's what's your secret for success? How are you doing it? And I'm not trying to be insulting to those people, but it's they, it's almost like they expect a magic bullet. You know, they expect me to be able to give them, you know, a couple of sentences or, or a one paragraph answer. If you just go do blank, you're going to have 200 students. And it really, really, really doesn't work that way. There is no magic bullet. There is no one thing you have to do. There are dozens of things you have to do. And you probably are not going to be able to do all of those things 
all at once if you're if you're not doing any of them for now you can't go from from crawling to running a marathon you know you you have to take it through the steps but it is a very much a systematic approach everything we do has a reason and it all ties in and it all comes back around to what i've said a couple times it's about setting your goals and being honest with yourself and so for us one of our main goals is we want to be a place of positive development for people kids and for adults uh, it just so happens I, I have a particular soft spot for kids. I've always liked kids. I love working with kids. Uh, my daughter is the same way, and she's turned into an amazing junior judo instructor. Um, but you have to sort of – I think a lot of people can teach kids, but not many people can really be good at it and really enjoy it. And you got to be honest with yourself about that. Uh, so setting those goals and being honest with yourself. So for us, it's about helping people become better. That doesn't mean better competitors. You know, like I said, competition might be one of the tools we use to get them there. But I up till this is after all the years we've been doing this, I've never once had a parent come in and put on that paper that they want their kid to be a judo Olympian or they want their kid to go be a UFC champion. Or, right. you know, that none of I want my child to be able to fight well, that that's, it's never that it's it's. But what we get over and over and over and over again is some variation on one of several themes. It's, it's either um, my child lacks confidence and discipline and focus. It could be one or all of those things. We get the confidence and discipline a lot um, or my child is is overweight. Um, they need more physical activity. And usually I've talked to the parent and yeah, the, the, the child just wants to sit on the couch and play video games or, or watch YouTube videos. They're not doing anything physical or what we've unfortunately what we've seen increasingly over the years is uh, is bullying. You know, my child just, you know, changed schools or we just moved here or my child just went to junior high or whatever the case may be um, and is having a real problem with bullying. Um, and that's a really huge issue these days. And so those are the things that we see over and over and over again with kids. We look at the adult forms, same thing. We don't have adults coming to us wanting to be UFC champions or, or, or you know, BJJ world champions or whatever. What we see from adults usually is, you know, I want to get in better shape. Um, I want to learn how to defend myself better or to defend my family better. Um, I want to relieve stress, you know, things like that. So that's what we're getting from the adults. You know, occasionally we'll get a young guy or, or lady that will come in and they're they will honestly tell me, yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping to maybe get some training and, you know, I'd like to start doing some cage fighting. Uh, we do get that with some young adults every once in a while. And I'm always very polite and professional, but also very honest with them when I tell them that we really are not the school that you're looking for. You're not going to get what you want from us. I can give you the names of a few places, you know, that that specialize in that. We don't. Uh, right. And there, because there's no reason for, I'm not going to mislead those people. Do I have the knowledge to teach them the grappling skills they need to do that? Yeah, absolutely. But that's not what I'm trying to accomplish. I have no interest in that. So why lie to those people and, and mislead them? So mom is really important because I would say 85, maybe 90% of the time, the people that contact us for information on our kids programs, it's almost always the mom. 
it's very, very rare that we have a dad contact us. It does happen, but it's very rare. Um, it's usually mom that does it. It's usually mom that's going to talk to me on the phone or email back and forth with me. It's usually mom that's going to bring the child in for their first couple of trial classes. It's usually mom that's going to be bringing them to the classes on a regular basis. Um, and so if mom is the primary one doing all this, then she's the one that we really need to be marketing to. And so for our kids program, we absolutely we, we try to market to mothers. That's who we market to. Um, if we happen to get an occasional dad that gets our message as well, that's great. <laughs> chances, sure. chances are he's going to say, hey, honey, uh, if you can, I'd like you to, you know, call this guy and get some information on classes, you know, for our son. That's usually what's going to happen. And I don't think that that makes people bad dads. I just think that that's the dynamic that the way that it works out in most households these days uh, in America. Yeah, in yeah, I, I completely understand that. Yeah. Um, so. You get the kid, you, mom brings the kid in, the kid becomes a part of the school. And I know because of JudoCon, you have a lot of different types of games and activities. It, it's hard for me to describe uh, unless you were actually there at JudoCon, but you, you gave a demonstration on some of the activities that you do, judo-related activities, things that can build on judo skill. You did a lot of fun, different type of things that you that you have for your kids class. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe explain how you came up with these games? Because I think I thought yeah, they were great. Sure. And, and I, that, well, I that's that. a Thank selling you. point for, for mom as well. She yeah. comes in, she brings her son or daughter in there and you see – you know, instead of kids standing there all somber, bowing and 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 just looking all depressed, they're having a lot of fun. You you yeah, know? Yeah. Yeah, that's a big part of it. You know, that's really important. We 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 teach good martial arts, but we do want the kids to have fun. Whenever I teach coaching seminars, when I'm we talk about games, one of the first things I ask the group is, okay, so what is the one thing that every kid wants to do? And everybody they want to have fun, they want to play games, whatever. It's always fun. That's what kids want to do. And it's the truth. Kids just want to have a good time. So we figured out a long time ago that if you want to get kids in judo and keep them in judo, you need to make it fun. You need to try to disguise as much of the repetition as you can, because let's face it, a certain amount of learning a martial art of any kind is repetition. You just have to do the numbers. You just have to put the work in doing the techniques. Of course. But that gets very boring. You know, I mean, I, I hate doing uchikomis. You know, I hate it. I've always said I hate practicing grip fighting, but I understand if you want to get good at competition, you have to do those things. Um, and so, you know, it, we have to find ways we can try to make this fun. And the formula that we use is pretty simple. We, you know, after we line up and bow in and, and get started, we do warm ups. We make sure that our warm ups are, are getting the kids loosened up and warmed up. But it's what we kind of a lot of the things we call drills for skills. So a lot of the exercises and drills we do are going to be to help develop specific things that are going to be helping with their martial arts training. Now, any type of exercise is good. Anything, anything you can do is good. And it's all going to help your judo. But, you know, why do 100 jumping jacks when we could maybe instead do what we call goonie birds or pogo races? where we're bouncing on a single leg and I have our other leg raised up behind us 
because it simulates or mimics doing Uchimata. Right. right? Or, or Osotogari. And so finding ways to, to tie in drills and exercises that more directly relate to grappling, to judo, to grappling martial arts uh, is important. And if you do those things in a lighthearted manner and make them fun and make them a race or a contest, not, not a competitive hardcore contest, but just a fun contest where everybody's laughing and, and you know, having a good time, kids are going to like it better. So what you end up with is, is a, you know, a 10 minute warm up where the kids are all sweating and breathing hard, but they're all smiling. You know, they're all having a great time. And that's huge, man. That's just so huge because now we're going into the technical portion of class and the kids are warmed up and they're, they're ready to go, but they're in a positive frame of mind. They're not bored. They're not miserable. Like you just said, they're, they're fired up. They're kind of excited. You know, they're, they're pumped about it because they just did a lot of fun stuff. Right. And so, you know, we do our technique work and then we're going to do Rondori and we do lesson planning. We do lesson cycling. You know, we, we, we have our curriculum laid out a whole year in advance. We could have, ah, a, whole, okay. we could have, we could have a whole podcast on just that. We don't have time. I know for that, yeah. but again, <laughs> it, it's what I said earlier. It, it's all a system. It all has a reason. So we know we do our lesson plan a month in advance. My daughter now has taken over making the ones for our junior class. And I still do the ones for the adult class, but there's a written lesson plan. And that lesson plan is to get us to the short term goal of preparing the kids for their promotions at the end of the semester. And so we know what we're teaching. So if we're doing throwing techniques and standing work tonight, we're going to make sure in our warm ups and drills, we do a lot of things that focus on stand up work and skills. We're not going to spend 10 minutes doing shrimping and back bridges and things like that. If we're then going to be doing throwing techniques, because, yeah, it's all good. But wouldn't it be better if the warm ups more directly related to the skill that they're fixing to work on? So, again, there's a reason for everything we do. So warm ups, technical work, the Rondori we do that night is also going to tie in. If we just did ground based warm ups and ground based techniques, we're going to do ground Rondori. And then we're going to end every class with a game. And that game is going to be a ground based game. So that whole night was focusing on groundwork. Um, and by the end of that night, by the end of that 40 minute class, you know, they've done a lot more repetition of, of these these skills and these movements than they ordinarily would have if we were sort of jumping all over the place. Uh, does that make any said, sense? Yeah, it does. Now, you just said something that I wanted to, to jump on. You said uh, earlier, a few minutes ago, you said that your warm-up's 10 minutes. You just said a 40-minute class. So can you tell me how long are your classes and why do you have the classes at that length? Yes. So that's another thing that, uh, man, I keep saying this a lot. I sound like a really bad guy. That's <laughs> another mistake that I see a lot of judo you know, instructors make is they, their classes are just way too long. So our junior judo classes are 40 minutes um, and we have a 20 minute uh, dead period before the next kid's class starts. So there are times we will go over by three, four, five minutes if we, if we need to. And that's fine. If we won't need to get the work accomplished, we will. But so 40 minutes on paper, sometimes it stretches out to 45. Um, our adult classes are all one hour. They're 60 minutes. And, Interesting. Uh, and honestly, and this is just my opinion, if you're running a kid's class that's more than 40 or 50 minutes long, 
you're probably making a mistake <laughs> to be quite honest with you. Right. And if you, if you're doing, if you're doing more than 40, 45 minutes, what I would say to you then is okay. Tell me about your numbers. How many kids do you have? And what is your retention? How many of those kids have been with you longer than six months, longer than 12 months, things like that. And it's almost always really bad numbers. It's always really low. Huh. Um, and same thing with adults. You know, I, I can see the argument with adults for maybe going an hour and 15 minutes, maybe even an hour and a half. But in all honesty, it's just not necessary. It's just not necessary. And again, when you look at the people running those classes and start looking at their numbers, they're usually not good. So we do 40 minutes for kids, 60 minutes for adults. Now, again, hey. we're not trying to produce elite athletes. here. I'm not saying you can do that and make it to the Olympics. OK, oh, I'm not course. saying that. That's gotcha. not what we're doing. Um, what we do, though, is for those kids and adults that are going to compete, we, we know the tournaments we're going to participate in. My wife and I sit down every December. We plan out our entire next year, month by month. We know the tournaments we're going to participate in. We know when promotions are going to be. We know when we're doing game nights, you know, whatever. It's all planned out. So we know months in advance that we're going to go to this tournament on this date. So about 60 days before that tournament, we will start offering, you know, an extra training class on Saturdays for kids and another one for adults. And we don't charge anything extra for that. It's just there. It's optional. Yeah. And if people want to come in and take advantage of that, then they do. And in those classes, we're going to go longer. We're going to go harder and we're going to focus on competition work. But that has very, very, very little to do with actually running a successful program. I, I would say, honestly, it has nothing to do with it. That's really we do that more as kind of a service <laughs> for our students. Those few that do really want to compete. We honestly do it for them. Um, I, I, we could probably stop that tomorrow and it would not hurt our numbers, you know, in right. any way. That's how, now, how much, it is. Um, how much do you charge? Uh, how much do students pay a month uh, for, for, for judo or really to be, be a member of your club? Cause I know that could include other uh, uh, classes and such. Yeah. So we, um, for kids up to age 13, we only offer judo. We have junior judo. That's it. Um, so we, we don't have a kid's BJJ program. We only have a teen and adult BJJ. So for a kid to train judo with us, it's one ten per month, hundred and ten dollars. And we do uh, family discounts. We do twenty percent off for a second family member and thirty percent off for a third. So it's uh, one ninety eight for two people, and I think around one seventy seven or so for three people. I'm sorry, two seventy seven for three people. Right. Uh, so we kind of have a family max of three hundred dollars. If if everybody in the family, there's five people. And they all want to train. We're not going to charge any more than three hundred dollars. So you, you, okay. you know, maybe you have mom and dad that get to train for free or something like that. They have to buy uniforms and pay promotion fees and so forth. But we don't charge them tuition. We have very, very few people that do that. But we, we have had a few over the years that'll that'll hit that number. That would, you know, and that's fine. We're happy to do it. Yeah. So one ten a month, and then a twenty percent discount or thirty percent discount uh, for adults. It's the same rate. If they do judo, it's 110. If they do BJJ, it's 110. If they want to do both of those, we do a discounted rate of 170. So they can do judo and BJJ for 170 a month. And our boxing and our EIDO classes are really just kind of add-on programs. They're only offered once a week. 
actually EIDO is offered uh, twice a week, boxing once a week. And so it's it's a, a small rate. You can basically kind of add those on to whatever you're doing. It's like 40 bucks a month for boxing, 60 bucks a month for EIDO. So if you want to do judo and boxing, you pay 110 for judo, you pay 40 for boxing. So now you're at 150. So now do you um do you also do like because I think you just said uh, belt promotion fees? Do you do you yes. do belt like do you do charge fees for testing and, and things like that? And, and I I gotta think that might be one of those things where you might have struggled, uh, maybe coming to a uh, to do that or maybe not. I don't know. Uh, can you talk a little bit about why you charge those fees? Right. So for years we pretty much always charged a fee. But for years and years, the fee we charged was just for the, the national organization. But for us, it was USJA. And right. so we used to do all of our junior promotions and all of our senior promotions through the USJA. And everybody that signed up, when they signed up, a part of their sign up fee automatically went to buy them a USJA membership. And so, you know, there was a time I had, you know, 110, 120 active USJA members. Um, and, and I've come to realize now that I just, I was just basically throwing my money away and that's not, I'm not going to go into, I have no, no issues with the USJA. I think that they, all the, the big or Jew, Jew organizations, the big three, as I call them, they're all about the same. They have a lot of good people that volunteer and, and do a lot of good work in them. Um, they have some people who are not so good and there's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes that, that are not good. Um, that's in all the organizations. Of course. And um, I think that they're all broken. Uh, I think that that they all have missed the boat as far as what direction judo should have been taken in two or three decades ago. But at any rate, right. what we used to do was uh, we charged enough to cover the promotion fee for the national organization and to pay for the belt if they were getting a new belt. Right. Um, so we really didn't make any money from that. Um, and now what we do is um, we charge promotion fees for all junior ranks. We charge promotion fees for all adult ranks in judo. Um, we don't charge for stripe promotions in BJJ, but sure. we do. But we do charge when you change belt colors, when you go from, say, white to blue or blue to purple. There is a fee for that. Um, and with all of our programs, uh, judo and uh, BJJ, we use what's called a rotating curriculum. And we rerun our what we call a four month semester. And so we're going to have promotion evaluations at the end of the fourth month. Every fourth month, we're going to do promotions. And not everybody will be eligible. There's different criteria right. for the different programs. But if you're eligible for promotion, you're notified of that in advance. You're told when the promotion evaluation is going to take place. You're told how much the promotion fee is, when the promotion fee is due. And, you know, if you don't get your promotion fee paid, you don't get evaluated. It's 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 a part of our business model. It's a part of what we do. Now, our promotion fees, I don't think, are, are astronomically high. Uh, we charge you know twenty five dollars for kid ranks when they rank up, uh, and again, that's only three times a year. So we're talking seventy five dollars in a year's time for your child to do you know three promotions. Um, and for adults, we do it's twenty five um, for the novice ranks, and then thirty five for the brown belt ranks. And then if you get you make it to black belt there's some other fees associated with that but um, it's still not much you know it's like a hundred dollars but from a business perspective using a rotating curriculum and doing that semester model what it allows us to do is make our yearly plan we know when promotion is going to take place and the promotion fees 
help us uh, with our revenue. When you talk about the three R's, the recruiting and the revenue and the retention. So doing that helps a lot with our revenue. Um, we know, we know, for example, we're going to promote anywhere from 65 to 100 kids. And so that's going to be an extra whatever thousand, twelve hundred dollars that's going to come in in revenue at the end of that month from junior judo promotions. And for a commercial operation, that's huge. You know, we need to do that. Um, same thing with our adult program. We can plan for it and we know we're going to make some extra revenue that month from promotions. So we, we keep it very affordable for people. We don't gouge people. Um, you're never, ever, ever, ever guaranteed a promotion. Um, okay. Gotcha. Ever, ever, ever there. Ever, and every promotion cycle that rolls around, there are people that we have to tell kids and adults, um, that they're not getting promoted. Um, and, and we have, again, we have criteria that we set out, you know, for kids, it's the number of classes you attend. It's us observing your behavior and performance of your techniques in class and how you work with other kids. And we send home what's called a permission to promote form. And so the parents and teachers at school have to sign off on the child's behavior. And that ties in with our larger kind of character development program we do with kids. And every semester never fails. We're going to have at least a couple of kids that that permission to promote form is not going to get signed. Either mom or dad is going to have a problem or one of the teachers at school is going to have a problem. And so it doesn't matter if that kid's made every single class, if they won gold medals in three tournaments this cycle, and they can do the techniques blindfolded. If that permission to promote form comes back negative, you're not getting promoted. That's all right. there is to it. You're not getting promoted until we get word from whoever that was, mom, dad, teacher, whoever, that whatever the problem behavior was, it's been corrected. And then we'll if it's appropriate, we'll test you then. If not, you may have to wait till the next you know, promotion cycle with our adults. You know, they have to have the minimum number of classes. We have to see them do the technical work. They have to earn their promotion points, um, you know, and, and so. This past promotion cycle, we had two teenagers. They're great students. They work hard. Um, they're teens. They're at Greenbelt. They were eligible to test for SONQ. Um, and it's it, they're perfect. They're, they're great kids. They, they're really, really, really good kids. But we sat down and talked, my wife and I and some of the other instructors. They weren't ready. They, they technically just weren't at the level we wanted to see for Brown Belt. Sure. And we sat down with them and their parents. We explained to them the situation. We we made it a positive, not a negative thing. You know, we made sure to compliment them on how well they were doing and how proud we were of them, how important it was that we have to maintain a certain level, you know, with our judo program. And, you know, so and, and at the end of the day, everybody understood and was happy. They were were they a little disappointed? I'm sure they were. Right. But but we didn't feel they were ready. Therefore, we didn't test them. So uh, and, and we'll reevaluate it you know, toward the end of this promotion cycle. If we feel they're ready, they'll test for their son cue. If we still don't feel they're ready, they're not going to test. So, right. again, you got to set those goals and standards and you got to stick to it. Um, we don't rely on those promotion fees to pay our light bill or our lease. Um, but again, it, it's great to have that extra revenue coming in. But it's, it's not something we have to do. So I don't ever feel pressure. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I need to promote at least 50 kids this cycle <laughs> to be able to, to pay the lease or something like that. I, I can see kind of like you were saying earlier, I can see how with some instructors you could maybe get yourself into that position. 
uh, if you're not real careful. And so that's one of the things, again, we set as a goal, we're not going to promote people to ranks they don't deserve. And, and we stand by that, you know, we just right. reinforce it strictly. So, but yes, we do definitely charge promotion fees. And so using membership agreements, using automated payment systems for your processing monthly, uh, charging promotion fees and charging a, a good uh, monthly rate for what you're offering. I think those are four areas that if, if more judo instructors would adopt those things, um, I think they would probably see, you know, 30, 40 percent growth in their school within the first year, probably uh, just just from doing those things. Um, everything else has to come down to the way that they market, the way that they they recruit and then their curriculum and the way they run their classes. You know, it's um, again, there's so many different there's so many different uh, parts to the recipe. <laughs> it's a lot. Of yeah, stuff. I, I hear you. Well, well, James. I really appreciate the time um, you coming on the podcast to talk to really all of us about this. This is a, this is most of of what you covered at JudoCon, and and I I thought it was definitely worth listening to again. I'm sure there's a lot of uh, judo instructors and even students that may want to be judo instructors in the future um, th that will benefit from this. Um, I hope so. Yeah. So you know I, what, what you just said there, I'll just say this in closing. I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but what you just said about students wanting to be instructors, you know, I, I really, really believe one of the keys for judo to survive moving forward, if it's going to survive, I really think that being able to offer the route for people to become full-time judo instructors that needs to be something that's more realistic for people. It, we have to get this mentality out of the judo community that, like I said earlier, that you can't make a living teaching judo. You can't make a living teaching judo. We have a lot of really, really skilled and, and, and uh, knowledgeable young people that make it to maybe a, you know, a high brown or even a black belt rank before they go off to college or maybe they're even in college when they do this. But they never even consider the possibility of running a full time martial arts or judo program because it's been just beat into their head that you can't make a living doing that. You can't support your family doing that. And I think one of the keys, if, if we're going to ever turn judo around, I think it has to become acceptable and not just acceptable. It needs to become realistic um, that you can become a full time martial arts instructor. And uh, it, I heard Jimmy Pedro do an interview about five or six years ago, uh, and he said exactly this same thing. And I remember hearing and thinking, man, so now so this guy's saying it. he's a legend. He's one of the best we've ever produced. He's he's, right. he's he's just awesome. And he's such a great coach. He's produced so many champions. So now Jimmy Pedro's saying it. So surely more people are going to listen to it. You know, surely they're not going to listen to me. I'm some schmuck from nowhere, but they'll listen to Jimmy Pedro. Right. No. Not so much. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's unfortunate, but I really think that needs to be something that, that happens. And I'm not saying everybody should be a full time instructor. I'm not saying that uh, not everybody should, but it should be an option. It should be something that's encouraged. It should be something that we're helping prepare these people for. I have at least two people right now, two young people in, you know, in my school that both right now, as of now, their goal is to one day be full time judo instructors. Now, that may change. You know, but I'm hoping that, that it doesn't. I hope that they want to move in that direction. I'm hoping that they I'll be able to help them do it. 
Um, and yeah, I just, I really feel like it's something that we have to embrace that if we, I mean, BJJ has embraced that wholeheartedly and, and look at how successful it's being here in America. There's a BJJ school on just about every corner. Um, and I have nothing against BJJ at all. I think it's a great martial art, but judo just has such a powerful moral and ethical message that is just a, a central focal point. It's, it's, it's what Kano said it was supposed to be. And that's what people are looking for. It's what families are looking for. And if we can just, if we can embrace teaching full time and keeping the focus on helping people become better people, not just better competitors, I really, really don't see any reason why judo cannot be just as successful as BJJ is as far as growth and numbers. But, um, you know, anyway, that's my uh, that's my spiel. I'm off my soapbox now. I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, <laughs> Fantastic stuff, James. I, I really appreciate it once again, and uh, we'll definitely keep in touch. And um, and thank you once again for joining the podcast. Is there any uh, if, if anybody wants to reach out to you? Is there any social media, email preferences, or anything like that if they want to ask any questions? Yeah, I mean, they can certainly find us on social media. Um, we're a little more active on Facebook uh, at this point. We do have Instagram and Twitter. Um, right now, statistically, numerically, more moms are, are still on Facebook than Instagram. And so that's where we focus most of our attention uh, for marketing and so forth. Uh, but you can find us, you know, Wall to Wall Martial Arts uh, on Facebook. Um, we also have a website, wallmartialarts.com, with a contact form there. Uh, they can email me uh, wall to wall judo at gmail.com. Uh, I'll, I'll do everything I can to help out. Again, they have to be willing to be open minded um, and understand it's 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 not an easy fix. Um, it, I'm nothing special. I'm, I'm neither super intelligent nor super athletic or gifted. I'm just a very average guy. So if I can do it, there's no reason other people can't do it. They just have to be willing to uh, open their mind and, and, and uh, make a few minor changes in the way they think about doing their judo. So, so absolutely. And of course, we're doing a lot of good things are trying with the JBBA uh, coach education program. We're really trying hard to make that a program that's about helping people become better, better instructors as far as getting and keeping more students. It's not focused on competition. So, um, you know, look up the JBBA on Facebook and our YouTube channel. And uh, if you want to get involved in that, we'd be happy to help. Awesome stuff, James. Thank you very much. You have a great rest of the afternoon. Thanks, Dave. You too. Talk to you soon. Open Gangnam Style. Gangnam Style. Open, open, open.